Everybody. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Essex Church and to this community of Kensington Unitarians who meet here each week. Our community is open to all people of goodwill and it's created by all who gather here. We've arrived in our different ways, with our different beliefs and experiences, each following our own unique life path, each with our unique stories to tell. And we have, in common, our shared humanity, and perhaps a shared interest in, in something deeper, something deeper in life and in this mysterious world of ours. So let's be open and receptive here and now to life and its mysteries, Prepare to step over, perhaps, thresholds of our own making. Softening that which is rigid within us. Strengthening that which is weakened. Balancing ourselves. And so balancing our world. Welcome. Welcome to you all. And our chalice flame is lit. It's one flame connecting us with progressive communities of the spirit the world over. Unitarians, Unitarian Universalists, and all who want to live life from a standpoint of unity, 
of oneness with all that is. So may this single flame strengthen our connection one with another and overcome feelings of difference, of isolation, of needing to go it alone when that perhaps isn't serving us as well as it might. What would it be like to live with our interdependence, our need for one another, as a guiding principle? I know that some of us have not had the easiest of weeks. I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you think you're in that category, and I think I am, then do give us a wave at this moment. Anybody had a difficult week? Yes, there's a few of us suffering here. Well, perhaps we can tell one another about our difficulties over a cup of tea later after the service. But I hope that nobody has had a week quite as disastrous as the Queen in this folk story who lived in Thailand many years ago. There are bits in this where if you want to join in and shout something that will become apparent, you're very welcome. So it is said that once upon a time a queen sat on her balcony eating rice cakes and honey with her chief advisor. And as they gazed down at the street below, the queen pointed to something in the distance and as she did, a drop of honey fell from her rice cake and it landed on the balcony railing. My queen, said the advisor, you have spilled a drop of honey. Shall I call a servant to come and clean it up? So you get a sense of the kind of life they're leading, don't you, straight away. <laughs> this has got no relevance, this story, to any of us. The queen laughed. A little drop of, of honey, she said. A little drop of honey? That is not my problem. Mm -mm. Someone will clean it up later. So they went on eating and talking as the drop of honey warmed in the sun and began to slowly drip down the side of the railing until it landed in the street with a plop. Your Highness, said the advisor, who was clearly on the ball that morning, that drop of honey has now fallen into the street and it's attracting flies. Shouldn't we call a servant to come and clean it up? But again, the Queen yawned lazily and replied, a little drop of honey and a few flies are not my problem. Someone will deal with it later. Soon, a lizard darted out from underneath the palace wall, began to catch the flies on her tongue, as lizards do. Then a cat sprang from the baker's shop and began to bat the lizard back and forth, as cats do, just like a toy. Just then, a dog charged out from the butcher's shop and began to bite the cat on the neck, as dogs do. Your Highness, the advisor implored, now the flies have attracted a lizard, which has attracted a cat, which is now being attacked by a dog. Shouldn't we call someone to stop the fight? The Queen only stretched, shook her head at the advisor. Won't you relax the sin of simple, silly animal fight? That's not my problem. Someone else will see to it. And in fact, the baker did see to it. Phew. She saw the dog attacking her cat and ran out with her rolling pin, began to hit the dog. The butcher heard his dog howling, ran out with his broom and began to hit the cat. Soon the butcher and the baker were hitting each other. Then the neighbouring shopkeepers took their sides, joined in the fight. Then some soldiers came along. 
Some knew the butcher, some knew the baker, so they took their sides and the battle grew. It grew and grew until the battle was raging through the town and then somebody. If you ever find yourself in this situation, don't take this next stage, okay? <laughs> took a flaming torch from a wall and hurled it through a window. Fire raged and it eventually spread to the palace. Hmm. The next thing they knew, the queen and her advisor were being escorted down a ladder from the balcony into the street because the palace itself was in flames. And later that day, when the queen and the advisor were standing, surveying the ruins of their town and their palace, suddenly the queen stopped in the street underneath where her balcony had been and she stooped down and saw a little puddle there on the ground. Oh, it's honey, she remembered. I guess I should have cleaned that honey up in the first place. And now my whole palace has been lost because of it. And that, you know, was the very last day that that particular queen ever said, it's not my problem. <laughs> and I think our children are now leaving for their group. And if you can think of any circumstances that are not your problem, I'd be glad to hear of them. So we're moving into our time of uh, reflection and prayer now and we're remembering that this day, the 27th of January, is de designated as Holocaust Memorial Day. On the 27th of January in 1945, uh, the concentration camp at Auschwitz was liberated. Um, particularly this year, we, we also remember those who lost their lives and their homes and their loved ones in the genocide in Rwanda, which happened 25 years ago now. <coughs> We're all called, aren't we, to bear witness to humanity's ability to turn against itself and to create false divisions based on race, religion, ethnicity, political affiliations maybe. Genocide's roots surely lie within the divisions that we actually create within ourselves, in our, our minds and in our hearts. This year's Holocaust Memorial Day takes as its theme, torn from home, torn from home. And so as I call on the divine spirit of light and love to be with us now, I ask that each of us remember the importance of home as a symbol and as a reality of safety and security. If it feels appropriate, let us give thanks for our own homes. And that we always remember that here in this room with us, there will be those who do not have a place to call home or for whom home is not comfortable or safe or easy. So let us open our compassionate hearts for those who long for a place to rest their heads, who long for a place once again, that they can call home.
And as we mark Holocaust Memorial Day, we are called to remember the depths of our potential inhumanity to one another. And we are called to commit ourselves again and again to the rebuilding of shared humanity. To cultivate our ability to greet all others as neighbours, even when, particularly when, they're different from us. And when we hear of other people's problems, let us own our collective involvement in all the world's issues. Let us take shared responsibility for the problems of our world, knowing that we cannot live for ourselves alone. And with this principle to guide us, I invite you to spend a few moments in silence now, directing your thoughts, your prayers, to those you know to be in need this day. And let us own our individual and collective potential for wrongdoing. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And may we always remember our power to make a difference, to make things a little better in this world by our choices, through simple acts and small adjustments in our thinking, and by remembering that each and every person is indeed a neighbour of ours. Amen. This, um, this reading comes from a book of readings by uh, the Reverend Meg Barnhouse. Those of you who know Kate Dean, Kate Brown rather, who's a, a member of this congregation, but who also lives in Austin, Texas, Meg Barnhouse is uh, the marvelous minister of the Unitarian Universalist congregation there. And there's an open invitation for all of us to go on a congregational trip to Texas one day. And uh, if you'd speak to Juliet, our treasurer, later, she'll, I'm sure, be making the arrangements for the financing of that. <laughs> I want to go because I think I'd like Meg Barnhouse very much indeed. She's very funny, but actually this is quite a serious reading. She wrote this when uh, the effects of Hurricane Katrina were being first seen, the effects on New Orleans. And she's talking about the difficulties we experience when we feel overwhelmed by this state of our world. See if this speaks to you at all. Like most of America, I've been watching images of war and natural disasters on my television. 
I try to imagine New Orleans right after Katrina hit. The music has fallen silent. The kitchens are still and sour instead of bustling and fragrant. And people on the streets look stunned. I try to imagine spending two days with my tall teenage sons in a shelter where we have no food, no water. We hear babies crying with hunger. The veneer of civilization is cracking and no one knows where this will end. And we're all aching to know when help will come and why it hasn't arrived already. Sometimes I try to imagine my family is really poor, trying to live on a minimum wage. Every day a crisis. I think I would give up after a week of the kind of life that some people wake up to every morning. I can't stretch my life experience far enough to subtract not only my car but my in-home washer and dryer, my bug-free house, my good foundation of health, my trust-inspiring white female face. What would life be like without these? I meet people at church in my town who know the answer. I watch as they reach out to the government, to me, and I struggle to open my heart to all that suffering, to look it full in the face and grieve with them and yet keep going with my life. I think of that parable of the Good Samaritan, a story I was raised on. The good man on the road passes a stranger who's been beaten and robbed and left in a ditch. He helps him, gets him a place to stay, food, clothes. That's how I'm supposed to be. But what if there was a stranger in the ditch every time the Samaritan walked that road? What if there were ten, a hundred, every time? What would he do then? The need is overwhelming. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to think about this. It's all I can do not to look away. And sometimes I write that check. I shop for extras for the food bank. It's one step at a time, one thing after another, deciding every day whether to look and help or look away. And I don't blame people for wanting to rest and to look away for a time. You can only be on the front lines a short while, then you have to drop back and let others take your place. I feel strong right now, but who knows how long that will last. I do what I can. There are so many heroes in a time of disaster, but there are also people who help by doing small things often even in the ordinary times. I think of the words of Adrian Rich in the back of my church's hymn book. My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed and I have to cast my lot with those who, age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world.
We're entering a, a meditative time now. We've just heard our choir singing about the oneness of everything. And I have a quotation here from the Tejo Bindu Upanishad, which says that to direct the mind towards the basic unity of all things and to divert it from the seizing of differences, therein lies bliss. So I invite you now to, to make yourselves as comfortable as you can in these chairs. Perhaps put down anything you don't want to hold on to or hold on to anything you do want to. Maybe let the gentle rhythm of your own breathing settle you in some way. Be aware of your chair resting on the ground and the earth beneath us. And as we share a good few minutes of stillness and silence together now, think if you wish about the unity of all things. Hold that as your compass. Bring you away from the looking for differences. Hold instead to the unity of all things. How on earth do we decide what's right and wrong in life? It's a choice we might find ourselves making a number of times each day. Should I, should I say this? Should I do this? What, what might the consequences be of this action? How m might the other person feel and respond? I, I reckon we'll all have made some moral choices this week. Some, some of them we may have been fully aware of, some of them will have been quite unconscious. Probably not many of us will have stolen anything this week. Don't put your hands up for this one. But I did borrow a church toilet roll when we were running out up in my flat and it was raining and I didn't want to get wet. And more than likely I'm going to forget to put that toilet roll back. Can you feel the grey areas of morality spreading already? <laughs> We'd like to think that morality was a clear-cut matter, but for many of us, much of the time, morality can be vague and uncertain. It's certainly socially passed on. It's taught in families, in our education systems, quite, again, quite unconsciously much of the time. Our personal social morality is then upheld by our legal systems. Oh, but it's not straightforward, is it? If you delve a little. It's not straightforward because different parts of our social systems have very different takes on what is acceptable and unacceptable behaviour. 
And we ourselves then make morality into something very personal and usually very private. Now, do you check your change when you're given it in a shop? I mean, I bet you're all really sensible. I bet you check your bank statements as well, don't you? But it's, it's taken me a, a long time to get into checking my change in shops. And if an assistant gives you too much change back, do you tell them? Again, don't, don't show. <laughs> so I rarely check my change, though I do try to do more. And I never used to give change back if I realised I had been overchanged, as they say, until a friend's daughter worked for a well-known high street retailer, but um, who shall be nameless, although frankly I think they should know better. But this daughter told me what a tough time that she had at the end of every shift, um, at the end of every day, when the money in her till did not fit what the till was saying. Now, my previous moral stance on this would have been, they're a big company, it's their tough luck. But once I realised that an individual, real human being, who I knew was involved, my moral stance changed. So we all have moral principles that are guiding our ways of being in this world. And one of the messages I think of today's service is that it's worth taking our principles out from time to time and inspecting them, checking where they came from, and if we approve of them still. Because we humans have a remarkable ability to fool ourselves, don't we? I've always thought it's one of the weakest arguments ever for, for you know, why we should have religion as a positive aspect of human society. You'll know the argument, the one that goes, we need a concept of God watching over us in order to ensure that we do the right thing. Don't make me laugh. I found these words from American writer Archibald MacLeish helpful when he wrote that religion at its best, it is at its best, when it makes us ask hard questions of ourselves. And it's at its worst when it deludes us into thinking that we have all the answers for everybody else. And I think I'd add to that when it deludes us into thinking that we're right and others are wrong. A survey uh, result announced this week as part of the publicity for the Holocaust Memorial Day found that one in 20 people here in the UK denied that the Holocaust happened <coughs> during the Second World War. And one in 12 of us seriously underestimate the numbers of people that were killed. And we all know, don't we, that throughout history, people have at times turned against others as a group and tried to destroy them in their entirety simply because of who they are. What colour their skin, their religion, their ethnic origin, their family name even, or where they live, their neighbourhood. And we know that some of the people who committed such atrocities were kindly family members who loved their children and their pets and who had been pleasant enough neighbours of those who they later attacked. And we know that many of the attackers were churchgoers and that church institutions were even part of the genocide itself, particularly apparent in some areas of the Rwandan atrocities. So religions may help people form their moral compass, but religious institutions can lead people seriously astray 
if they take someone's individual responsibility away from them and cease to encourage them to be the best person they know themselves capable of being. That word, responsibility, is one I've kept coming back to this week as I've explored this idea of an inner moral compass guiding our steps in life. In this week, when we've been shocked by the bursting of that dam at an iron ore mine in southeastern Brazil, we're reminded, are we not, of the greed of both individuals, but also of economic structures in our world. That capitalist urge to make money by cutting corners and by avoiding regulations. Dams don't burst if they are built and maintained properly. A disaster like that is no act of God. No natural disaster caused by storms. For me, there are no external forces of good or evil. These are human constructs, human values, and they place wrong responsibility for the state of life here on earth clearly on our shoulders. And I do think we have the capability to deal with the complexity that that brings. When we ask one another what principles about are behind our moral choices, some people mention sometimes what is described as the golden rule found in all the world's religions. Do on, unto others what you would have them do to you. And really, the world would be a better place if we lived from such a rule. Yet we know, don't we, that life is actually far more complicated than that one. That other people may not actually want to be treated in the same way that we want to be treated that this kind of morality actually requires getting to know somebody and understand their life story. Earlier on, we heard the story of the queen eating honey and rice cakes on her balcony, who she was so sure that it wasn't her problem when that drop of honey fell to the street below. And then one drop of honey led to the street fight, and eventually she lost her palace. If only life was that simple. Did you, any of you remember this nursery rhyme? Um, it came to me because I, I heard somebody singing it a couple of weeks ago to their little one. This is said to um, stretch back to the 15th century and Richard III's death on Boswell Field where his horse fell. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Well, let this be a warning to us all. Which of us wants to end up buried under a car park in Leicester? <laughs> like poor Richard III. If you're visitors from foreign lands, somebody will explain that to you over coffee later. In, in the 12 Steps programme of Alcoholics Anonymous, step four asks that we conduct a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. This step is not for the faint-hearted, and it really should be done only when we are in a strong enough place in life to conduct it. But it is worth it, isn't it? Time to time, taking a long look at ourselves, just to check that our moral compass is still working, is still active, is still aligned with the way that we choose to be in life. 
and to tell ourselves that though we cannot take on responsibility for every issue that our world is facing, it's worth doing the little we can with the little we have. For who knows, our small act might be the equivalent of sorting Richard III's horseshoe nail. Just imagine how the course of history might have altered had that been done, or the Queen's drop of honey. Our small choices might, just might, change this world. Amen. And I do um, commend to you the, speaking of small actions changing a world, the charity we're collecting for today, Hope Not Hate, are really doing some very basic steps, especially educationally in schools, to, to work at a grassroots level to avoid the growth of fascism. It feels a really important project at the moment, so do give as you feel able to hope, not hate. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote that the ultimate measure of a person is not where they stand in moments of comfort, and convenience, but where they stand in times of challenge and controversy. In the week ahead, may you be blessed with the strength you need to stand up for that which you know to be right. In the week ahead, may you be blessed with the, blessed with the humility to know that your cherished opinions and points of view might actually be wrong. And in the week ahead, may you be blessed by the spirit of right action, guiding your steps for the greater good of all. Amen. Amen. Go well and blessed be.